Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Bill Bray, the Deputy Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine, and today we are fortunate to have uh, First Lieutenant David Allman, who uh, won the General Prize Essay Contest. I'll talk about that in a minute uh, before we introduce him. Um, here at the Naval Institute, things are going very, very well. Where the editing, editing team is working hard on the July issue, which will feature 16 additional pages, uh, including a maritime counterinsurgency package. Um, my boss, the editor, you may ask, wonder why he's not here. He's actually in Monterey, California today, and he will be participating in an, a, a streamed event uh, in just a, a couple of hours, uh, 1500, 3 o'clock Eastern time, uh, a sea power conversation. Um, that it will be done uh, with him on the on the panel and others at the Naval Postgraduate School. We will be putting a link out uh, shortly in social media if if any of you uh, want to uh, watch that event as well. Um, also, finally, we it's summertime here in uh, it, it, as it is everywhere in the Northern Hemisphere, but uh, in Annapolis, and that means for us at the Naval Institute, it means midshipmen interns. We have three on board in the first what they call the first block first training block. Um, they'll be here with us until 24 June. They're uh, getting a full deep dive immersion uh, experience at the Naval Institute. They're working on a couple of different projects that we hope to be able to share with uh, proceeding subscribers when they're done with them. Um, so that's, it's always good to have uh, young, fresh uh, youth or youth in, in, in the building. Uh, the next generation is going to take this mission forward. All right, um, so we're gonna talk today about uh, David's uh, article uh, from the uh, June issue, uh, the, the three winning uh, essays were in the June, June issue this year. Uh, just to remind the audience, the General Prize Essay Contest is uh, the Naval Institute's longstanding essay contest. It goes back to 1879. We had 135 entries this year, so winning this contest is no small achievement. Uh, it is quite competitive and there's way too much we can, uh, we certainly that could win a prize, but also even uh, to publish. So congratulations to him. And before we get into the article, um, I would ask David to just talk about uh, himself a little and uh, why an Alabama Air National Guard uh, officer uh, is so knowledgeable and interested and uh, on Sea power in the and the U.S. Navy. Yeah, thanks, Bill. It's uh, it's great to be here. Um, I, I guess to to answer your question, it's a little bit of a chicken and, and an egg problem. Uh, another way of asking it is, why does somebody who is so interested in the Navy, maritime issues, et cetera, wind up joining the Air National Guard? Um, and so, really, the the kind of the short answer is, when I was five years old or so, uh, my mom bought me a book called Warfare at Sea that had a picture of an Iowa-class battleship doing its nine 16-inch gun broadside. Um, I think I actually begged her to buy it for me. I don't think she went out and willingly uh, bought that. Um, and then pretty soon thereafter, we, we were in Annapolis and went and visited the Naval Academy. Um, and I was hooked on this kind of issue of, you know, big ships and big planes at sea and in the open ocean. Um, and so that interest from an early age kind of just went on, you know, had grandparents who served in the Navy, uh, who flew in the Navy. And so my entire life, I've always been, uh, I consider myself a student of naval issues and maritime issues more broadly. Um, 
And so it just wound up through a bunch of different circumstances where, you know, went to college, um, thought I was going to go to the Navy afterwards um, until I found out about this cool thing called the Air National Guard, where they uh, basically ultimately let you fly part time and still have a civilian career. Um, and so that sounded pretty good to me. And so I, uh, I was fortunate enough to get picked up by the Alabama Air Guard uh, flying the F-16, uh, which is not not a bad deal at all. And so. You know, I, I pursue my military service through the, the Air Guard, um, but uh, still have a deep interest in maritime affairs. And then, you know, as we all know, and as viewers of this podcast surely know, uh, you know, the United States does not go to war as one service. We go to war as a team. Um, and so, you know, the Air Force and the Air National Guard plays a you know critical role, uh, just as the Navy does in any sort of maritime conflict, which is why I you know, still keep reading on the subject and still keep writing on it. Um, when when I feel the need to. Excellent. That that's just fantastic. The great story. Um, David has written for us in the past as well, and others on the on sea power topics, um, and he does a fantastic job. And this is proof positive that we do a, a complete judging in the blind uh, process for uh, for the GPEC and every essay contents for that matter. So the judges and the initial readers have no idea who the authors are. Okay. Um, again, the article is called Don't Buy Warships Yet, yet in parentheses. Um, without reading the article, one could conclude that an Air National Guard officer is arguing against shipbuilding, and that is, that is uh, far from the truth. That is not what the article is about. Um, it's a, uh, it is about shipbuilding. Anyone who's followed Navy uh, shipbuilding story the last two, three decades uh, knows that it's, it's it starts with a number. Uh, we all talk about numbers. Um, even the CNO gets asked all the time what the number is. Um, and I think uh, senior leaders tire of that question to some degree. We're talking about uh, capability and capacity and strategy, which is what are we doing with the Navy or what do we intend to do? So uh, David has kind of taken a short and long-term approach to the U.S. Navy force structure. Uh, the short-term approach is about um, what would happen um, if the Navy had to help Taiwan defend itself. And he references early in the article uh, what's now colloquially come to be called the Davidson window of Admiral Phil Davidson, who was the then commander of Indo-Pacific Command, testifying last year, I believe in the spring of 21, uh, about um, what when the China might, if, if China were to try to take Taiwan by force, how soon could it happen? He, he cited six years, and that has come to be called the Davidson window. So with that, David, uh, tell us about the kind of the short term, um, why the U.S. Navy should not focus on shipbuilding to solve its short term problem um, in, in that kind of a problem set, China-Taiwan. Yeah. Yeah, happy to. So I, I think kind of the, the headline here for the next five years, and we can get into some more of the specifics about this, but it's really that the Navy can't. Um, naval shipbuilding cannot, due to the timeframes involved in building a warship from scratch, due to our industrial-based constraints, our, our inability to rapidly ramp up production, the Navy cannot appreciably reduce risk over the next five, six years by embarking on some massive naval shipbuilding program. Um, and so, you know, although we might want to, although in a magical world, it might maybe make sense to embark on some massive naval shipbuilding program, 
if you are saying that your objective is to reduce risk to Taiwan or you know, reduce the risk to U.S. objectives, which then means uh, ensuring that we have the ability to deter Chinese aggression and, if necessary, defeat a, an invasion or an emotional invasion, um, then warships are not your answer if that risk is over the next five years. Um, and so that's kind of you know one of the the one of the ideas that really led to this essay was that I felt that there was you know within the Navy and within all these discussions about ship numbers an underappreciation of time. Um, you know, quite simply, if you're talking about ship numbers and shipbuilding, that is something that is not going to actually manifest itself for another five, six, seven years. Um, and so we really then need to be looking again, if our objective is to reduce risk over the next five, six years at alternate methods um, and really, you know, non-shipbuilding methods. Um, and so it's that kind of logic that then leads me into uh, what I kind of term the three A's of air power, allies, and asymmetric capabilities. So, you know, just to take a step back and make sure it, it's totally clear, without kind of meaningful structural changes to how the United States builds ships, which I'm not saying is impossible, it's just a problem that, you know, I personally at this time don't have the ability to answer with it with the degree of confidence I'd like. But if you say that we want to reduce risk over the next five years, the answer is not to build a Navy. The answer is to build what, what a mentor of mine kind of termed an anti-Navy. Um, it's to take these Chinese shipbuilding numbers and say, hey, that's cool and all, but we have a way of stopping it. And we have a way of stopping it in a way that's cheaper than, than you are building it. So we'll take your $1 billion guided missile destroyer, $2 billion guided missile destroyer, depending how cheap it is for them to make it. And we'll counter that with, 10, $2 million long-range anti-ship missiles, LRASMs. And so the strategy that I outline in this article is in the near term, over the next five, six years, reduce risk by acquiring a ton of anti-ship weapons and then focus on the platforms that can deliver them in quantity. And that goes to that three A's bit. That's uh, the, the inner management consultant in me with the, um, the, the easy way to remember it. So first A, is air power. Uh, the second A, allies, and the third A, asymmetric capabilities. Um, and I'll pause there before I kind of go into more detail on those. Uh, does, does that answer that question? Yes, very good, very very well done. Um, in the in that first section of the of the essay, you 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 also talked about how hey, even if we could wave the magic wand and build uh, ramp up the shipbuilding. Uh, warship building uh, production uh, in the, over the next five years, we still couldn't keep pace with China because of China's shipbuilding capacity. And you said in there, and, and please correct me if I don't have this quite right, but I, you, you said that China is building a large fleet primarily from a war, their war fighting objective in a large fleet is to escort and protect uh, invading forces against Taiwan. And they're, they want to stay inside the first silent chain because they know they're uh, vulnerable, even against a smaller Navy like the United States with allies and our uh, our air power capability, long range strike capability, anti ship strike capability that they're putting. They would be putting their ships at great risk to go outside the first silent chain. Is that did I capture your? 
Yeah, yeah, a bit. And I think that, you know, one of the things that I wish I had more space to make clear in this essay is that you know, there is this this huge, the huge bit of this essay is the time component. And so when I think about Chinese ship numbers, I think of it kind of in two different problem sets. And I acknowledge here that warships are fungible, right? So that same Arleigh Burke that might be showing the flag in peacetime or conducting anti-piracy missions can in wartime be a very potent anti-air, anti-ship platform. Um, and the same is true of the Chinese Navy and, you know, type 055 cruiser or, or whatever uh, the warship is that you want to pick. And so in the near term, I think there is a tactical or operational level issue with Chinese warship numbers, and that is their ability to escort an invasion force across the strait, their ability to kind of form part of the, the integrated air defense system, the IADs, within the first island chain, and then their ability, you know, kind of as you allude to, to potentially go outside the first island chain, but then they're really giving up a lot of their advantages and they become more vulnerable. Um, so that, in my mind, is the near-term tactical operational level issue, to which I would counter it with um, kind of our anti-Navy concept or our ability to just go out and sink ships, not necessarily compete on a ship-for-ship -ship basis. However, again, acknowledging warships are fungible. Over the long term, there's a concern I have of Chinese influence more broadly, the concern of a Chinese carrier strike group in the Atlantic Ocean, you know, projecting Chinese power, doing Chinese influence operations, whatever. Um, and so kind of the mental model I have there is I am worried about Chinese ship numbers you know, in the 2030s and beyond. I'm worried about a Chinese great white fleet and the potential inability of the United States Navy to compete with that. But these, in my mind, are two different problems that we can solve over two different time frames. The first problem, that tactical operational level issue of the cross-strait invasion, is a here and now problem, in my opinion, something that we need to acknowledge now. We need to move rapidly to ensure that we can deter Chinese aggression this decade. The other issue, that issue of Chinese kind of strategic sea power, uh, Chinese sea power, the Chinese Great White Fleet, that is a longer term issue. Um, with which I believe we have the time to move the needle in a meaningful way to ensure we can compete. Okay, uh, very good. I am going to, um, let's go back to the escort, the near-term issue again, and the, and the Chinese fleet numbers. Uh, I'm going to challenge you a little bit on that, just to talk about it. I know analysts, you know, from my previous life, as an intelligence uh, officer of Chinese Navy analyst, so we'll probably question you on that. And maybe we'll get some letters, who knows? But uh, that escorting and protecting the invasion force, absolutely priority mission for the Chinese Navy. But even with the, um, in, a, in a current scenario, a near-term scenario, would the Chinese Navy not try to um, uh, put at risk um, U.S. and allied assets outside of the first island chain, if for no other reason, to uh, draw allied and, and, and U.S. naval forces away from Taiwan. They'd have to go out and defend and search so they can pull them away, even though I agree with you that the Chinese are putting their, uh, their fleet at risk. And we know the Chinese have practiced exercise outside the first island chain. Yeah, yeah. So it's a great comment and, and, and a great, you know, way to push back on it. Um, I, I think that that is all true. However, the question we must then ask ourselves is, what is the best way to counter that? My assumption and my belief is that the best way to counter that 
is not with our own you know equivalent navy we say hey cool if you want to send a warship you know out into the indian ocean well then i say okay well maybe i have a b1 and diego garcia that's going to go hunt that ship down um you know kind of the historical metaphor for this is you know and as i write about in the article is you know the graf spey in world war ii or the german east india or uh, east asia squadron in world war one where sure you might have uh, adversary vessels that go out and complicate life for you. It's suboptimal, but it's really a distraction from, from the, the core uh, bit of the conflict. Um, at no point was the, you know, the Graf Spey or the East Asia Squadron really going to meaningfully impact the course of the war. You know, they, they might result in tactical level setbacks, um, but it's not a problem that we should be focused on. Uh, surely somebody should be focused on it. But as a nation, as a Navy, as an Air Force, as a joint force, um, we need to be looking at what is the core thing that we're trying to do here, which in my mind is um, defend Taiwan, deter Chinese aggression towards Taiwan. Um, yes, good. Uh, I, I agree with that. I would, um, let's, let's one more point on the um, near term. In addition to not being able practically as you point out, you know, regardless of what the Chinese plan to do with their Navy, practically we can't build ships fast enough over the next five or six years um, to make a meaningful difference from a standpoint of force on force numbers. Um, many, including representatives Elaine Loria, Mike Gallagher have written for us and many others that it's not just about ramping up the shipbuilding numbers now, it's about keeping what we have and this divest to invest strategy um, where the Navy is actually going to get smaller with the intent of getting to the next generation of ships quicker um, is a mistake. We shouldn't get smaller. What say, to you, what say you to that? Yeah, so I I tend to agree as a headline. However, I think that there are multiple levers you can pull to achieve the same objective. So if you say um, that we do not want the Navy to shrink, my question back would be, well, what does that mean? Um, you know, there was a great article in Proceedings by, uh, uh, I believe, your retired Captain Robert Rubel or Rudell, and I apologize to him for butchering that name. Um, Barney Rubel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, about you know how we count warships. Um, you know, does the do the hull numbers matter? Do the VLS tubes matter? You know, what actually matters? And so, you know, I know witnessing some of Representative Luria's. Um, you know, work and advocacy on the topic of which, you know, I'm generally a huge fan and believe she's pushing in all the right directions. Um, you know, if the, if the problem you're trying to mitigate is a VLS tube shortfall or really a, a weapons delivery shortfall, well, then you can potentially do still go out and achieve that objective while also retiring ships. And the way you could do it would be, you know, as TX Hams wrote, um, and, and as I cited in my article, you can go out and look for innovative ways to get large quantities of weapons on other ships. Um, you know, if you can acquire a used merchant um, and go put a hundred weapons on it for you know half the price of a, of a Ticonderoga, well, maybe that then allows you to retire your Ticonderoga, still invest in the future and not have a weapons delivery shortfall. So you can you know, kind of have your cake and eat it too. Yeah. Uh, yes, she did anchor mostly on the VLS number cells as, as a, the key metric that she was driving at. Um, so that's a very good point. 
I'm going to ask you this question. So that the we saw um, a, f- a few weeks ago, a month and a half, whenever, whenever it was April, I guess, uh, the the Black Sea flagship Moscow was sunk by two Neptune anti-ship missiles. Now, I'm going to be very careful here. I have great faith in U.S. Navy ship captains, trained crews, capabilities to not have themselves in that situation, um, to be able to fight a ship under duress much better, not making a comparison. But we published an article, and it does show, I think, to your point, that what kind of damage, uh, including lethal sinking, you know, uh, a couple of anti-ship missiles for a far cheaper price can do uh, to a modern warship. Slava is not that modern, but it's it's a warship of the you know last forty years or so. Yeah, yeah, and it's a great thing to bring up. Um, you know, I at the risk of sounding like a, a luddite on a lot of this, you know, I'm really um, unconvinced by a lot of the arguments that the nature of warfare is changing or that ships will be you know permanently vulnerable um, going forward. Um, so I still think there's a place, you know, a very real and a very important place for warships for large capital ships as well. Um, you know, fundamentally, I think that one of the things that, you know, our nation has kind of forgotten, especially over the last, you know, really 30 years since the fall of the uh, the Soviet Union is the fact that in wars or in conflicts against peers or near peers, things are not always going to go your way. Um, you know, as the British on the Falklands with HMS Sheffield, um, you know, and all the ships that got sunk, as we even saw you know, with USS Stark, um, which is, you know, not even against really a, a peer or near peer, um, you know, things happen. There's the fog and friction of war. Um, and so, you know, I think that we, we really need to accept the fact that in a conflict, we are going to suffer losses. Um, although we might do our best to mitigate those losses, it would be unwise of us to plan for a scenario where we don't suffer losses. Um, and so, you know, although there were a lot of problems with, you know, it appears what the Russian Navy was doing in the Black Sea and what they still are doing in the Black Sea, just from a kind of tactical professional standpoint, um, I think the message that people should take home from uh, the sinking of a Russian flagship in the Black Sea is not, you know, um, that that warships are now super vulnerable. It's not that the nature of warfare is fundamentally changing. It's that, hey, in war, things happen um, and we should plan for that. And we need to make sure that we have the capacity to accept those losses, to incur those losses, and still go out and fight and achieve our objectives. Excellent. So we have a uh, we got a couple of questions rolling in from the audience here, David. I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you one from uh, one of our longtime uh, writers as well, and an essay contest winner from Lieutenant Kyle Craig, U.S. Navy. He asks, "What weapons, other than the subsonic lo- uh, long-range anti-ship missile Lorazm?" Or would you recommend we acquire at scale? Where do you see offensive mining in your construct? Yeah, so it's a great question, and I'll kind of give a uh, a bad answer to it. But you know, I'm very agnostic on which weapons we actually go out and acquire. So I think there's a world where you know a year from now we have the Elrazum ER or whatever you know the a, a hypothetical ex- even bigger extended range extended range version of the Elrazum. And I think there even is like an LRASM XR. Um, and, and we say, oh, well, that's now a better weapon than the LRASM. So let's go out and acquire that. 
just as 20 years ago, we might have said, oh, well, let's go out and acquire more harpoons, whereas now we might say, let's get more LRASMs or naval strike missiles, et cetera. Um, and so really, the, the framework that I would use to think about what weapons we should acquire would be as follows. I think there's an issue of which weapons can we produce at scale at an appropriate cost? So that would be kind of one bit. Um, and then which weapons can we get quickly? Um, and so I'm looking for the intersection of which weapons, uh, which anti-ship weapons can we produce at scale uh, for a decent price um, and make sure we can get them in the next five years per my kind of timeline to ensure that we can reduce risk. Um, so, you know, right now to me, that would mean, hey, that's a lot of LRASM. That's a lot of uh, Argam ER, the kind of the anti-radiation missile to support that. That's probably lots of stuff like MAL, the miniature air launch decoy, um, and MAL J, the jammer variant, stuff that'll just confuse and complicate the picture. Um, but really it's whatever weapon set, you know, the, the weapons officers um, in the fleet and in the Air Force say are gonna allow them you know, the greatest chances of success. Um, to the second bit about offensive mining, uh, the answer would be yes, yes, and more yes. Uh, offensive mining, I think, could be hugely valuable. I think we run into a bit of a problem of, you know, how do we make sure those mines are potentially in place prior to the start of the conflict and or how, how can we actually go about and deliver them once the conflict has started where that area becomes much more denied and much more difficult to work with. Um, and then I think there's a kind of additional issue there of, which assets are, are we going to allocate to deliver them? Since a lot of the assets that are potentially the most survivable or most lethal um, or, or most able to deliver mines, you know, our attack submarines, potentially like our stealth bombers with uh, quick strike mines um, are probably going to be busy doing a lot of other things. Um, but mining is kind of one of those things that I, that I wish I had talked about more in my piece because it is so hugely valuable um, any way we could go about delivering those mines, um, I think would be hugely beneficial. And uh, again, one of the benefits is they're cheap and we can probably do it in a meaningful time frame. Great. Uh, very good. Okay. Let's, let's move now to the uh, second, really the second part of the, the essay, which is the longer term. And this is where I would describe you're very much an advocate for shipbuilding um, that the United States needs to reach generate, rejuvenate its shipbuilding uh, capacity, um, you, you take the point that the first way to do that is to invigorate the Navy, uh, US, United States civilian shipbuilding industry. Um, and I'm going to, um, again, correct me if I'm wrong, you seem to be advocating for public outlays um, to, um, or at least incentives uh, to to reinvigorate, and once the civilian shipbuilding um, capacity grows, you'll 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 be able to transition that into military shipbuilding more easily. You'll have a a, a bigger, uh, competent, more competent, and large larger workforce uh, to do that, et cetera. Is that is that correct? Do I capture that right? Yeah, yeah. So I, I mean, the the kind of the foundation for this point and the theory behind it is, you know, ultimately. Um, ships are ships, you know, some ships carry cargo, some ships carry weapons, but to build those ships, you use big cranes, you use dry docks, you use skilled personnel. And so a lot of the, the things that we need, a lot of the fixed infrastructure that we need to build, sustain, repair, uh, civilian 
uh, uh, maritime vessels is the same as what we'd use to build naval maritime vessels. And you know, there's been a great bunch of reports out of, out of uh, CSIS on the topic, and they call it um, China's like opaque shipyards. Uh, basically, it's talking about how you know there are many cases over the world where uh, you know private organizations are paying Chinese uh, shipyards to build merchants. And then the next year, those Chinese shipyards are potentially using that infrastructure to go out and build, you know, a guided missile destroyer. Um, and so what that does for the Chinese Navy is it allows them to build warships at a lower cost, because instead of the Chinese Navy fronting the bill for all the fixed infrastructure, instead of the Chinese Navy having to keep all of that staff employed, uh, the cost is spread out uh, among the civilian sector as well. Um, so that's kind of the, the theory behind it. As far as here in the United States, like practically, um, and I'll, I'll put out a huge caveat here, right? So I am by no means an expert on the U.S. civilian maritime sector, uh, the Maritime Administration, the U.S. Merchant Marine, et cetera. Um, I, I consider myself pretty well read on a lot of the topic, but ultimately what I would love to see uh, from the United States Navy is more of a conversation about how all these elements of, of maritime power are interrelated. I would like to see the CNO talking more uh, with the merchant marine about how they can jointly use their capabilities, how they can jointly go out and try to procure vessels um, to try to give the civilian sector um, kind of that, that catalyst it might need to expand, to ensure we have the industrial capacity to, to actually make a difference um, in our ability to build, sustain, repair naval vessels. Um, yeah, so I'll pause there. Yeah, um, very good. I, I haven't, you know, there's a lot of uh, rhetorical support for enhancing the um, U.S. shipbuilding industry from, um, you know, politicians of all stripes. Um, nobody seems to, no administration, one side or the other, seems to make it a priority in the end game of budget development and, um, and, and trying to build the support in Congress to actually do that. Do you see it happening in the next, I mean, I think this is one of the points that, that Representatives Laurie Gallagher and others make is, you know, we talk a lot about it um, and we talk about shipbuilding, um, but when the shipbuilding plan comes in from the Navy, and um, it, the, you know it's it's underwhelming, and then the um, just the the, the um, political public support to actually do this uh, never seems to materialize. And each year that goes by, it's another year or, or so distant in the future where we'll actually be able to do this. Yeah. So I I mean ultimately. Um... To me, it's a little bit absurd that we've been unable to make this progress, especially in the civilian shipbuilding sector. Um, and the reason why is because, you know, in my opinion, it should be a bipartisan effort. We we are had, you know, with the Biden administration, this huge infrastructure bill. You know, we always are talking about job development, job creation, you know, onshoring U.S. industry, bringing it back home. All these things are issues that are talked about across the political aisle. So to me, it seems like it'd be a fairly no-brainer to say, hey, one of our jobs programs that we can do in you know, every single coastal or, or, you know, or, or river bordering state is we're going to go out and we're going to build ships. Um, you know, we don't make money off of the roads we build. 
the roads we build are, are something that we do to help the economy more broadly function. Uh, so if you know, even if our merchant marine isn't the most profitable thing on the face of the earth, even if we lose money off of it, the fact that we're still going out and you know, kind of reinvigorating the U.S. shipbuilding sector through a jobs program, infrastructure development program, um, I think would still be something that would appeal uh, to both sides of the, of the political system. Um, and so, you know, to me, if I were, you know, the questions I would ask, you know, the CNO and, and the, the Navy leadership is, you know, why, why aren't we going out there and talking to every single representative we can about one, how much we would benefit from, you know, this large um, kind of shipbuilding program. Uh, and then second, I, I'd be going out and saying, hey, you know, without this, we really won't be able to compete, uh, you know, over the long term with China. Yeah, very good. Um, okay, well, we just have a few minutes left. And I, so I want to ask you, have you gotten uh, feedback on the article? Um, and if so, how has it been? Yeah, so I, I have gotten uh, plenty of feedback. Um, I, I think I divide the feedback up kind of in, into three sets. Um, there's some feedback that's just kind of around the, um, the tactical uh, doability of some of what I'm suggesting, where people ask, you know, hey, can air power really survive in the face of a, you know, a Chinese assault? Like, like, does that stuff make sense? Um, to which I, I kind of respond, you know, hey, these are tactical level issues that we can solve. Um, there's a second bit of feedback I've gotten that's been around uh, and kind of my favorite bit of feedback around um, how does the Navy work with the civilian maritime sector, specifically around the Maritime Administration, MARAD, um, and you know, how do we make that work? Um, and really what that set of feedback has kind of led me to is, is I think, and I hope to do a piece on this in, in the future, um, I, I think that a lot of people in the Navy do not understand the merchant marine. Um, and I think that that results in a lot of suboptimal decision making, whereas if those two bodies were working together, it would really benefit both in, in a meaningful way. Um, and then the third bit of feedback I've gotten has kind of just been around time. Um, so, you know, a lot of my essay is kind of focused on, hey, in the near term, let's do this. And then in the near term, let's also do this, but for the long term. Um, and so I think that, you know, there's been some debate over, hey, is that is there actually that risk in the near term? Because if not, then you might say that elements of the strategy are suboptimal because you're potentially sacrificing, you know, uh, naval capacity in order to build the anti-Navy capacity in the near term. Um, and, and I think that those are all valid questions um, that I think it you know, ultimately rests on the intelligence community, political leadership, et cetera, to figure out you know, what risk is there and what risk are we willing to accept? All right, very good. Um, on this very topic on shipbuilding, um, as uh, readers of proceedings know, or, or should know, or most of them, that, that we do an ask and answer question at the end of uh, each issue. And the question for July, which we're working on, the July issue, as I mentioned, uh, is what should the U.S. Navy's top shipbuilding priority be? Um, I can tell you, uh, I'm not going to spoil the fun here for our readers, but uh, we've gotten quite a few answers. Um, uh, eight or nine will make the magazine and the rest will, will post online. So it is a very, very um, popular and emotional topic. That's what I'll say about that. Um, so look forward to that. 
Okay, before we go, I have to ask you this. I can't let you off the hook because you're you're not just a JPEG winner. You're an F-16 pilot. And have you seen Top Gun Maverick? Will you see Top Gun Maverick if you haven't seen it? And what does an F-16 pilot think of the Top Gun franchise? Yeah, so I, I think any military aviator goes to see Top Gun, myself included. Um, in fact, uh, our entire F-16 squadron uh, rented out a theater and went, went to go see it. Because oh, excellent. Ultimately, even though the jets say U.S. Navy on the side, uh, it's still a fighter jet. They're still afterburner, uh, something that we're, we're all very uh, familiar with and, and love to see on the big screen. Um, so, yes, we'll see it. Yes, saw it. We all saw it. Um, you know, the the F-16 pod of me has to, has to jest a little bit at the uh, needing the backseater to work the targeting pod since you know, <laughs> targeting pod with my uh, left hand. Um, but... You know, obviously there are trade-offs there, and obviously the uh, the NFOs or the Wizos play play a very important role. Um, you know, as far as the realism goes, I kind of just put on my suspend uh, disbelief hat uh, for yeah. a bit, and it was a great movie. Uh, shout out to Tom Cruise for making you know an awesome movie uh, that really kind of gets at the heart of you know military aviation, naval aviation. You know, and uh, and I'll say as a last bit there. Um, you know, although the movie was mostly about Super Hornets, uh, the plane that he flew was a P-51 Mustang, uh, which is obviously an Air Corps, uh, you know, Heritage Air Force aircraft. Um, and although it wasn't really uh, a red tail, uh, a Tuskegee Airman uh, aircraft, it did have a red tail. And so as a member of the Alabama Air National Guard, of the 100th Fighter Squadron, uh, Legacy Red Tail Heritage, uh, I very much appreciated it. Oh, outstanding. I learned something uh, as well. Well, that's great. I, I think it's great. And I was I was very impressed uh, as well. I also had my suspend disbelief hat on and I'm not a pilot, um, but I uh, was very impressed with what they put the actors through to to film those scenes and the you know technical. That's really quite an achievement. I think they made the right decision to hold it to uh, a couple of years to get it in the theaters. So, all right. With that, I want to thank you, uh, First Lieutenant David Allman, for being with us today. Again, the 2021 uh, General Prize Essay Contest winner. Congratulations to him. And uh, thanks our audience for being here. Uh, as always, uh, we'll see you next time. And victory begins with the Naval Institute. Thanks so much, Will. Thanks.